Welcome to Awoken Word, Season 2. I am Anu Drostogi, and you might know me from the first 12 episodes of Season 1. I'm really excited to kick off Season 2. We have a number of great guests lined up. So I've had a whirlwind year of travel this year, and I'm very fortunate for it, between Toronto, New York, L.A., Austin, Mumbai, Goa, it's really been quite an experience this year, and I'm really happy to be taking this podcast and these conversations right into people's cities, and in some cases, as today, into their homes. So to kick off Season 2, I am really excited to share with you today's episode. If you are a lover of music, and I don't mean just the casual listener of music that's playing in the elevator or in the washroom at your office, I'm talking about people that really appreciate music. And I'm talking about people who really appreciate the process and the journey behind creating music and what music means to the world. If you're one of those people, I think you're really going to enjoy today's conversation. The reason is I finally had the chance to connect with Ashwin Srinivasan. For all my music-making and loving friends and listeners, this is a rare glimpse into the mind of a true musical polymath. And what he's done is truly remarkable because he has adapted the way that he is playing and rendering his music on the Indian bamboo flute in a way that's quite remarkable. It's quite different and very unique. He's got a wonderful voice. It's a very soulful voice. He is truly a citizen of the 21st century, immersed in all of the different stylings of music that are available to us. What's really interesting is that Ashwin has spent so many years cultivating and crafting not only his music, but also his philosophy and his thinking about the music and about what the music means to him and what it means to the world. He articulates some thoughts and ideas that I haven't heard anyone put in quite that way ever. And it really is a testament to the complexity and the nuance that's constantly swimming around in the ocean that's inside this man's head. So Ashwin, thank you once again. I really appreciated the time that we had to, to spend on this conversation. Now, there are a number of points in the conversation where we briefly trail off into Hindi, and you'll hear some words that if you don't speak Hindi, you probably won't recognize. And that's okay, because this is the 21st century, and we're in Mumbai, India, and that's just how it is. And you're actually going to get a taste, or rather a sound, of the city of Mumbai, India in this conversation, because you'll probably hear some traffic noise throughout. And I think it actually adds to the charm and the aesthetic of the conversation. There's really nothing you can do about it in that city. It just is a part of life, and it's a part of this conversation. I'd also like to send some shout-outs to a number of other folks that come up in this conversation. Of course, A.R. Rahman, sir, Nitin Sani, Junita Gandhi, who comes from my hometown, as well as shout-outs to the Ustad Zakir Hussain, and a former Awoken Word guest, as well as fellow Nitin Sani collaborator, Nikki Wells. I'd also like to send a shout-out to... Ashwin's wife, Somia, who I met just after we recorded. I didn't know at the time that she was an artist, and then Ashwin and Somia introduced me to her paintings, and I was blown away. She can really paint. Her artwork is incredible. If you ever have a chance and you're in Mumbai, India, take a look. It is breathtaking landscapes and really quite something impressive. So there is a lot of art in that home, and it really shows. And as always, to... All the folks out there listening to Awoken Word, please 
share the podcast, talk about it with everybody you can, talk about it with plants, animals, rocks, trees, it doesn't matter. Sound is a vibration, it travels, inevitably somebody passing by is going to hear it, and they'll probably eventually go and search out this podcast, and that's really important because I want to bring these conversations to the world. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, write a review, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on iHeartRadio, and big shout-outs to the entire team and friends that I've made at Ruckus Avenue Radio, based out of L.A., And without further ado, I present to you the first episode of Season 2 of Awoken Word, sitting down with Ashwin Srinivasan. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring, this podcast is my love letter to all of you. And we are here live with Ashwin Srinivasan in Mumbai on the Awoken Word podcast. Ashwin, how are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on this one. And hello to everyone who's listening to this. Ashwin, you and I have been trying to connect for a long time. We were talking about this earlier. I first saw you in 2008 when you were in Toronto mm-hmm. with Nitin Sani and with RF. Uh, that night I had actually had an opening DJ set before you guys had gone on. And then I think we bumped into each other again in 2011 when you played in Toronto. Right. Then again, in, like two years ago in Toronto. And then last time I was in Mumbai, we couldn't connect for, for various reasons. But here yeah. we finally are after all this time. So for those folks who don't know, who is Ashwin Srinivasan? Who are you? I guess I'm a... As a person, I'm very simple. As a musician, I'm an Indian classical Bansuri player. I started off learning Indian classical music and I've, 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 uh, I've pursued it and all my life. And during the course of that pursuit, I was also curious about other forms of music, especially harmonic music. And I did my, my own study. I could never learn Western music as such, but I, I did my own study of harmonic music. and. Whatever I do musically, whatever I express comes from that kind of uh, untrained study, but with its roots very strongly based in Indian classical music. So that's what I am. Right, right. Yeah, and there was a lot of honking going on. There's suddenly, this list is just too much honking going on here. Welcome to India, folks. Have a piece of this. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's what I am. It's, I, I think I'd, I'd like to see myself as that. I'm a simple guy and no-nonsense attitude and I like to seek to be straight to the point I like to seek honesty in everything I see or hear so even with other people's music I like to I like to find that honesty in their music and to see what they want to say right if I if I want to see what they want to say right I want to see that in their honesty and not in not in anything else so so did you begin as a vocalist or did you begin on Bansuri? I began on sitar. On sitar, okay. Yeah. Uh, my mom's a sitar player. Okay. And I learned from her and after a while it just kind of, I was quite proficient, I remember. I could, I could, I could, I could play well, sapat or, you know, the tans and stuff. But then one fine day I just got this toy flute, the, uh, the, the whistle type, the penny oh, whistle. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started playing tunes on it and then 
you know, my folks decided that this is not how you are supposed to play it. You, you need to learn the proper form of music so that, you know, it, it sounds better. I, could, I would just play this little whistle, penny whistle kind okay. of talk. It's a, it was a toy flute, basically. And then they took me to my first guru and uh, my training in classical started. And obviously, because I was already learning the sitar, my initiation into ragdari and and the form of presentation, mm. you know, tantkari form of presentation that Ravi Shankarji plays. Right. Because my mother learned from one of his students, whom I also learned from briefly. But most of my sitar training was from my mom. Okay. And so I've been, I was already exposed to that, that, that form of music. And uh, with Bansuri again, because uh, uh, my guru, Venkatesh Bodkindi, he is also, a, he was a great vocalist himself. So he learned from Bhimsen Joshi, uh, Pandit Bhimsen Joshi ji. And uh, so his playing had that influence on, on, on you know, that, that influence of his singing. Okay. So his flute playing had that influence. If I'm so that a little bit of gaiki, you know, that uh, was evident to me mm -hmm. from his playing, you know, kind of stuck to me. And then I would play, I would, uh, uh, I would just basically copy. I was eight years old when I started learning from him. Seven, I think, seven okay. or eight. Then he got transferred to Delhi. He was working in holiday radio, and so I, after a while, I just, I just stopped learning from him. I couldn't learn from him after that. Then I moved back to Bangalore and I went to uh, my second guru, Pundalik Shenoy. And he would teach me Ragdari, but there was a technical, uh, uh, how do I put it? There was, there was a certain, certain approach to the sound of the flute that I was searching. Mm -hmm. While I was still a massive, massive follower of Hari Prasad Charasyaji's flute playing. Right. So I would basically listen to his records and just replicate them. Right. And I was playing that, just that. But what happens is there's a certain, there's a certain uh, routine that we get into when we follow just one musician. And for me to open up my mind and my, my head about thinking in deeper into music, I had to listen to a lot more other Indian classical musicians as well as other forms of music. And then I, I heard uh, Dr. N. Rajamji's concert once in Bangalore. She had come. She's the violin player, my teacher. Right. And she plays the Gai Ki Young uh, on the violin. And she's like, she's basically, she just plays everything that vocal music, Indian vocal music is, is to mm -hmm. be, you know. And that really opened my mind. And I said, you know what, this is what I want to play. This is the sound that I was looking for. I couldn't place it in my head because I was just an early teenager and I couldn't really place that in my head because I was already influenced by this whole sitar style of playing and the right. Tantkari Ang and they were, there had to be something more to the Bansuri than just this right. was what my idea was and and this opened up a different world to me so I just and I got a scholarship at that time to come and learn from uh, I call her Amaji okay. from my Guruma and uh, I moved to Mumbai about 20 years ago wow and picked up, you know, I would, uh, uh, I would just observe her playing. And she, she also used, she had this to say. She said, I can teach you what I'm doing on the Gaiki Yang. I can teach you why I'm doing it. I can teach you rag. I can teach you Khayal Gaiki has got a different, it's, it's, it's vocal music. I can teach you all that, but I can't teach you how to play on your flute. That you have to figure it out. 
and luckily because I used to play the sitar, the fretboard and the movement, the physics of that instrument is quite similar to the physics, the fretboard physics of the violin also. Okay. It's just further away from the uh, the tuning knobs you go, the higher you get on the frequency. Right. Same with the guitar as well. Right. But to translate that onto the bansuri, which is very very uh, different from in in terms of its physics, mm. it's the other way. It's coming towards you. Okay. Right. Yeah. The physics of the bansuri works differently from the fretboard-based uh, instruments. Right. Any 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 instrument with a neck and a fretboard, or in the case of the violin, they don't have a fretboard. Right. But uh, if you see what I mean, yeah. that's what it is. So. For me to translate that, luckily for my, my uh, I thank my understanding of the sitar already, to be able to see what she was exactly doing. And that started a new world and a new uh, pursuit for me to figure out all by myself because there's no precedent, there's nobody else. I mean, the Gaiki Young Bansui players that I've heard, with due respects to them, I still found there could be more that can be done with this. Right. And I wanted this to be my own discovery as opposed to trying to get put together pieces, bits and pieces from other people's discoveries. I wanted this to be my journey entirely. Right. I don't know, something about that 20-year-old which thought that. And were you already singing as well? I was. Okay. Singing happened in a very uh, strange way for me. I was, I think, 14 or 15. And before that, I would sing. As a child, I would sing. But I couldn't really sing, sing, you know, like the way classical vocalists do or gazelle singers do. Right. And uh, I was in my 10th standard, 10th grade, 10th standard. And I suffered this bout of typhoid, a very severe bout. And it also relapsed after the first round. So almost two and a half months I was was at home just resting up with no energy in my system. And that was the time uh, my mom got me a cassette of Hazir, which is an album uh, by Hari Haran and Mm -hmm. Zakir Hussain. And that was like, you know, I basically the entire two and a half months, all that played in my house for almost 15, 16 hours a day was Hazir. Right. And it just got into my system. And in that state of weakness, I was copying him. I was trying to sing along with him. Yeah, he is incredible. He is something else. Yeah. yeah. And I could actually start. And then the Galeki Firat and the Murki and all that started happening just by singing that, those okay. eight songs. Before that, So, time Then, that was my, in fact, that was probably my only learning ever of singing. Wow, okay. And I mean, so you already have quite a grounding in, in the music. music. Yes. You're sort of picking and gravitating to very specific nuanced styles right. that are also not done on that instrument or yeah. in that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And as, as they say, you know, years later when I actually started playing with Hari Haranji, I've been his accompanist for almost 15 years uh, since 2001, I think. Right. And uh, in all those years, it just so happened that I was just basically following what he sang on my instrument. And his gaiki also really got imprinted on my technique. Interesting. And he was, he's, he's always unpredictable. There was a time when he actually went, up, went and said, uh, 
even I don't know what I'm going to sing next, but he knows. <laughs> while I'm performing, right? You know, he definitely knows, and he knows. He, I could, I could almost see how he was thinking, sitting right next to him, right behind him, in this this angle. I would sit on his left. So tell me about that. So here's this masterful vocalist, right? You know, he he he's he's legendary. I love his voice, mm-hmm. and yet hearing his cassette tapes, you know, as a teenager, to now being on stage with him and being able to put yourself in his mind space so you know where he's going to go. Mm-hmm. When you're in that situation, do you feel like you're tapping into some other place in your mind? What, what are you feeling at that it's point? It's a very nice way of looking at it, actually, because I've never le- looked at it that way. That's a very nice way of looking at it. I think on, its, on a more simpler level, I think I like to study people. I like to study who they are as, as, as personalities. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Bhai, as much as I know him, I've, I've known him very closely after that. He is what he sings as a person. That's interesting. Because there are those spurts of energy where he's, he's flamboyant and at the same time there's this very calm and serene, you know, almost a saintly uh, nature to his being where he's just quiet, he's thinking. So there's that thairav, at the same time there is that flash and then it's, it's all, it's not, it's not calculated gimmicky flash, you know. It comes as part of his, his being. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean, I mean, when I see so many, uh, there are other examples of singers whom I know, whom I'm not personally very impressed by, but uh, I can see that there is a there's a level of contriving in that phrasing or in that in the way that they sing a certain something, and for me that sounds fake or that sounds like okay they are manufacturing something right to get maybe an audience applause or to get something else or. And that kind of doesn't go down well with me. Mm-hmm. With me, Hari Haranji's singing is... I'll, I call him Hari Bhai. Let's, let's keep right, it there. Yeah. I, I want to get away with the G thing. Sure, okay. So, Hari Bhai is what I call him anyway. So. Right. So, Hari Bhai's personality kind of really came out in his singing. And I like to study people quietly. To such an extent that there was this... Much before all this happened, just about after the whole jaundice thing and all that, I had started to work as a session musician in Bangalore. It was just one small recording studio and, and, and a small session. And then it led to a lot of other things after that. And before I knew it, within the end of the month, I was like, I was working almost every other day. Mm. I used to do those eight-hour shifts. We were doing uh, cover versions. We were doing film songs, background scores, all in Bangalore, in Kannada industry. Okay. And... Uh, I started making some pocket money for myself because of that. And then I was introduced to R.D. Burman. Introduced meaning to his music. Sure. R.D., Kishore Kumar and Lata Mangeshkar was the combination. It was so potent that it got to me as a, as a 17-year-old. You know, I, it really got to me. I was like, what is going on here? Is this the kind of music that, that, that has already happened? And at that time, the kind of music that was going on in then Bollywood was all I was exposed to. And then I, I got exposed to this, this thing, this whole treasure of, you know. From like from, 30 years before yeah, that. 30, yeah, 30, 35 years. Almost yeah. from 50, when was, Tisri Manzil was about 60, 65, 66, yeah, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Around that time onwards. And there was this whole treasure of 25, 30 odd years of music by this one man. Every good song I had ever heard before that, mm-hmm. around from that time, 
I realized was by this guy, Arjun Verma. And it's still legendary and innovative and unexpected even today. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And people pick uh, even even for the TV soap titles and title after his songs. Yeah, you know. So it's it, it it just opened up a new world for me, a third dimension, as they say. Right. And I started. I wanted to know a lot more about that. I don't know why it worked this way. Then through my own discoveries, there was a small harmonium at home. I started playing with it, and I said, oh, "Okay, so this is polyphonic music." I discovered polyphonic music okay. at that time. And then I would I started figuring out, you know, combination of notes. I would still not call them chords because I didn't know them as that. Then during my studio sessions, you know, there was this other guitar player who would play the rhythm guitar, and I would speak to him. I said, "You know, what is this that you write? F major, C major. What is it that you write?" So he just quickly explained to me in half an hour. and the musical mind that already it was really absorbed everything and i could i could understand the basics of harmony the basic concepts of harmony how did you see as an indian musician that when you're first introduced to to chords and polyphonic music and harmonics and whatnot what wh- how did you see that relationship between the music like did like you see I the chord as a bed to lie on like it's a third it? dimension for me that's the z axis Ah, okay. If you look so at it, what are what are x and y then? X, if x being time and y being note, like the pitch. Right. Okay. You represent x uh, uh, time on x, mm-hmm. and you represent pitch on on the y axis. Sure. Could go uh, minus y or minus x. It could. You can't go minus x, obviously. Right. But then there's a z axis, which runs parallel. So for me, so if I have to, the way I understood it was with sa ga pa, basically first, third, and right. fifth. Right. Yeah. So if sa is going on on the x axis in the front there's a ga parallelly going on and then there's a pa going on on behind that. Ha, huh, okay. That's the z axis. Right. On which the same the whole thing goes. So it's and then like a histogram like right. yep. you know it it kind of looks and for me that's what for me I I I listen to sound in colors. We are so similar on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> colors and shapes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it has to have that uh and it has it has to be kaleidoscopic it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't no two times do the same idea ever come when you're playing or listening to music are you always seeing it that way or is it there's only certain times you're kind of tapped into actually visualizing music that way i invariably land up looking at colors and also i only listen to music when i with my eyes closed okay and that's when i'm keenly listening if i'm just looking at something and listening i'm not listening at all Mm-hmm. my mind is wandered off i'm not interested i don't know what it is but when i'm listening something keenly i'm just immediately i go i i close my eyes okay yeah. and that's when the vision starts to come and it's it's very visual it's 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 more colors than it's palettes it's more than any uh, imagery as such it's more palettes for me than imagery a lot of people can view music as images or, or like mountains some people see mountains some people see sea some people see water i only see palettes of color It's interesting you mentioned chords that way because I guess growing up in the west for me and I mean there was always Indian and Bollywood music and devotional mm. music and stuff playing at home but I'd hear that at home and then I'd leave and then it'd be like Def Leppard or Bon Jovi oh, yeah. or later on you know as you know hip hop came into being mm. so those two things were kind of always happening at the same time and it wasn't until i was probably 13 or 14 and i i'm not coming from a musical family i'm oh. kind of a real anomaly i think in in the family right. but when i first realized 
all, having heard Indian classical music but not really understanding what's happening, when someone first shared with me that there's actually 10 more notes beyond the 12 notes that yeah. you see on a piano, hmm. that there's quarter tones or microtones in right. between. And I understood that like on a fretless instrument, you end up hitting those notes, but I didn't really realize there was a system around yeah. that. Mm. And when, when that happened, and then I could appreciate what's happening in those microtones and mm. quarter tones, to me it felt like in your life if you've seen the color red and you've seen the color blue, but you never could conceive of a color purple. Mm-hmm. Like you've never seen it. Right. And then someone shows you the color purple for the yeah. first time. When, when I realized those notes were in between, that's how I felt the very first time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and these, these worlds just, they were never separate, but they just made so much more sense. They mm. clicked. And I feel like what you're describing with this Z-axis is yeah. very much like that, mm-hmm. right? It's just your own way of visualizing it. Right, right, right. Uh, that's how it came to me. Because I played an instrument which was monophonic. Mm-hmm. At least if I was playing a sitar or, a, or, a, or, or another instrument with a second, you know, like a sympathetic string. Right. Even if I had like multiple strings, I, could have, I would have probably experimented with it, playing two strings at, it at once and tried to right. experiment with it. I didn't have that chance. I didn't have that opportunity. By the time I could graduate to that level, I'd already dropped the sitar and picked up the flute, which was already a monophonic instrument. Mm. So for me, that introduction to polyphony and the way I discovered it by myself, I would stay at home and... I had this long vacation after I had finished my 12th grade. I didn't know what to do with my life. I wanted to do college, but at the same time, I didn't. I finally just studied on over correspondence and I just wrote my exams. I, I got my graduation. But that was the time when I really, really discovered a lot of this all by myself, sitting at home with that little one and a half octave harmonium, right. single read. And then with this R.D. Burman's music playing on one side and then classical music and my practice. And, you know, I discovered a lot of possibilities. Just sitting at home doing music for almost eight, ten hours at a stretch and get up and I was hungry, just go back and then come back. And then by the time my dad would come back home. Yeah, and then it's, it's like a family of a, you know, home of a family. Mm-hmm. And then my sister would go out. It was just the three of us. My mom was employed in another city. So I had the whole day left for myself since about starting at about 9, 9.30 in the morning all the way till 6, 6.30 until I would go out to go and play with my friends. I, right. I was an avid cricketer. Okay. Yeah. And uh, until that time, so almost like 14 to 15 hours with, you know, just music filling my life for almost six to eight months until the time I started working as a session musician. Mm. That's a lot of concentrated time and that probably formed the essence of my morphing into this other side of my life, my pre-teens and post-teens side of my life. Interesting. Uh, What happened during that time really, really opened up my mind. I think it was Einstein that said, uh, it's not that I'm smarter than anyone, it's that I spend more time with the problem. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's just that, that, that same idea. Yeah. I think when, especially if your mind is that hungry to constantly experiment and not necessarily even looking for an outcome, but just curious to, as to what's going to happen, yeah, yeah. that's where you just discover things that you just, you didn't, and there's something satisfying, I think, about discovering something yourself and not being told by someone else that right. this is what's there. Yeah, yeah. That's and even when someone tells you at some point, you land up deciphering it in your own way you understand it you comprehend it in a in a way which you want to see right at that point i like to add something i also 
you know, read up something about practice and during that thing, this thought struck me that we are products of practice mm -hmm. with everything we do. So, we practice not practicing as well. Like, you know, every time you find someone say, I've not been in touch with my instrument. I have practiced not being in touch with my instrument. That's a good does way that of putting it. Yeah, it does. So, we, 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 we are suckers for routine. As human beings, we are suckers for routine. We are, after all, we are an organism, organism on yeah. this whole, in this, in this universe. Yeah. That we have a mind and we are able to think is what makes us this uh, egoistic, superior yes. being. But we are an organism yeah. and we tend to have patterns and we are suckers for pattern. Yes, yeah. So, everything that we do, if we can get ourselves into that pattern, into that rut that you want to do, then you would land up being that. It could be someone, it could be being a couch potato. Yeah. You want to be a couch potato, you want to, you, you practice doing you that. You practice, yeah, you worked hard at it. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's about it. That's true. I'm curious, what do you think as an artist yourself, but also just as someone who is a lover of, of music and, and the arts, I imagine, what role do you think art and music plays in the world? Like, why, why, does, it, why does it exist? Why should it exist? Why, why should it matter? Music is the highest form of divinity possible. My wife's a painter, so I know music and art. But art is still visual. The moment you bring visual into it, there is a, uh, we start uh, defining or tangibilizing things. With music, there's nothing tangible. With visual, you still have something mm -hmm. tangible. Yeah. So music was the most superior form of, I wouldn't say prayer, I would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it there. I'm going to say this other experiment, if you've seen, there was this, there was a sheet of metal on top of which you put something. I, I know which one you're you know, talking you, about. You, it was you, like iron filings or something that would organize themselves in different patterns based because on Because of the, the vibration, yeah. right? Music was meant to be that vibration for our existence to bring peace to our mind and body and soul. I've kind of said that, at least to me personally, music is the highest or the most transcendental thing that we are capable of channeling or creating ourselves, only because, it's preaching to the converted here, but you will have seen, and I, I've definitely seen, artists from different walks of life, they can't understand a single word that each says, but they can connect on music, that yeah. language and the physics and the science and math of, uh, of music. You'll see people show up to a concert that don't even like that style of music, and by the end, they're moving to yeah. it, right? Because, I mean, much like those iron filings on that sheet of metal, right, right. it has a physiological impact. I mean, sound is a compression wave that moves through the medium, and it affects you physiologically, yeah. right? But it also, it, in doing that, it takes you somewhere else as well, outside of your else? immediate moment. What is How do you explain that else? I, I don't know what that else is. That's but it's, the point. Yeah. Which is why I say prayer. Which is why I started off saying prayer. But sure. now I would, I would put it more to, for uh, atheists to understand as well. Mm -hmm. Because I believe in God. Maybe a false belief. I don't care. But to coming back to that point, that it does unify your inner self. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of any other medium apart from music that can do it at that level. Right. For lesser mortals... There was religion, there was uh, <laughs> chanting and mantra sure. and language. Yeah. And, you know, you had to resort to spoken form of, of divinity. Music doesn't have a spoken form. Mm -hmm. Even in the Bandish, like uh, Bandish, maybe in Avdi language, there may be a language, there may be, it's, it's sung, but the tongue needs something to latch on to, which is why the spoken form happened. Right. The sargams happened because of that. The, 
bandishes happen because of that. But there is music was the it is it continues to be, and we we I don't think we have really realized the potential of music really still. Right. So you grew up with the classical tradition, the Indian classical tradition. You came across the Z axis mm-hmm. of you know polyphonic music, and and now I know you're in many different musical worlds mm-hmm. all at once from having seen your work, but. It's interesting to think that all music is an expression of the culture and of a time mm. that it was from. Mm. Like whether it's uh, you know East European gypsy music, or whether it's Celtic folk music, or it's um, you know African rhythm cycles, or even hip hop or country or what all of these you know contemporary and older styles. Mm. Somehow, some way, someone always finds a way to express themselves and express their unique experience. Mm. Now, having worked across all these different styles of music, why do you think Indian classical in particular sort of stands the test of time? But also, what do you think that you as an artist have kind of benefited by you know, being exposed to and working across all these different styles with different artists? The two different questions to address your first one. Unlike most other forms of music, Indian classical music doesn't come from folk. The classical music that we know of today comes from folk because there's a huge folk influence. Sure. But when we say Shastriya Sangeet in mm-hmm. Hindi or in Sanskrit, Shastra is it's a set of rules. Right. But they were written during the Vedas. Right. From the scriptures. I'm going to correct yeah. myself. It doesn't not come from the folk from, from from folk. It does come from folk, but the time the Vedas were written was uh, I don't know how many thousands of years ago. And the people, the humans of that time, had a superior understanding of how music should sound like and what it should be based out of. And if it had rules, if it had to have, you know, uh, a system, how to develop that. Mm-hmm. The Shastra of the Shastriya Sangeet was written at that time in the Vedas. And then it was passed on from generation to generation in no writing form, it was just passed right. on by just ear. In spite of that, unlike Chinese whispers, it has, it has taken, it has had its own evolution, but it didn't evolve much further away from what it was, what was intended to be. Even after seven thousand years of passing on, just orally, mm-hmm. oral tradition. So, by that, I have this understanding that Indian music is like water. Humans will never not need it. Interesting. They will, if if the if the water bodies are running dry, they're going to find a way to harvest water because you can't not have water. Mm-hmm. And because of that quality alone, it's so easy for it to blend in with anything you put, any other form of music you put. Eventually, it's all just frequencies, and it's if right. you look at it from a scientific point of view, it's just frequencies. Right. But what you do with those frequencies is what matters. When you bring in that human element is why it becomes what it becomes. Mm-hmm. So it can blend in with any any form of music. I think, is, is, was that your question first? Yeah, no, that, that definitely. I, I think that, but plus you as an artist then with that background, because I've seen you playing in so many different situations mm. and scenarios with so many different artists. The context in which you're operating is changing. Mm. So how does that affect you as as the artist that you are? I'm greedy. Okay, how so? With this one aspect, I'm a greedy fellow. So I, the more the merrier for me. And uh, 
it 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 happened by accident the first time i actually went and played in a jazz set someone just gave me the solo that he was supposed to play with all the changes on it and the first solo was supposed to be uh, you know just tonal so that this i was supposed to play my solo on it he took that solo the tonal solo and he gave me the changes on the fly during the show and he was a very dear friend he was just taking a piece out of me okay <laughs> Thankfully something happened that in the way that I played that they liked what what I played and I was looking at the keyboard player's left hand you know where his bass line was going to go yeah. and basing on that on the one bansuri that I had I took this leap of faith and started changing my sa every time he would change his bass line wow okay so I had to unconnect from my sa connect to a different sa and make sense of that scale whether he was playing a major or a minor and play something through that and the next bar he's going to do something else if that for me was new mm that threw me into this this big huge ocean of oh this is how you can play the changes how do i listen whom do i listen to what do i listen to and coming back now there are there may not be literal uh, uh styles or phrases you adapt from one form of music to another but you can get uh the concepts mm-hmm. if you can understand the concept of what's going on in jazz for example or in flamenco music or in in western classical music if you can understand the concepts they kind of seep through in your understanding it, it, it's it's not it's not something that i can explain to you but when i am coming back and sitting and playing a classical solo so often i find those those concepts coming into this cross okay. application okay and when i discovered that is when i started becoming greedy i wanted more of it i the more i knew about something the more i could do here or vice versa when i play the thing indian thing out on a maybe a flamenco set or on nitin set for example right. obviously i am there for a purpose on nitin set but if i'm playing uh, for a uh, uh, for a flamenco band if i'm playing with a flamenco band or a jazz band how do i i'm playing to changes but i'm playing the indian style of playing on those changes if you see yeah yeah no, I, i get it that is and now it, there's a duality going on there there's a dual 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 existence in the mind it is difficult but like i said earlier it's when you when you do the same thing over and over again you just get better at it anyway do you find that i mean some people may argue as purists that bringing in all these other influences back into the classical repertoire i've left it pure i've left i'm not not i'm not changing the rag so if i have to really give you an example right dhani re ma ne re ma de re ma dhani so if i'm playing uh, on changes for example i would do that line on the solo in a way where i can bring a little murki here or a mean there it's still a, it's still a process i don't know if i'm if i'm uh, if i'm explaining this correctly for uh, for the listener or for you to understand this because there's too much going on in my mind right now right. as i speak so i hope i'm assimilating everything and no it, it, it sounds it sounds like what's happening is you've got a different 
reference points or energy to work off that's yes. pushing you in a slightly different direction than mm. you would otherwise go. Mm. And every other style or artist or type of music or influence you, you introduce to yourself, mm. it's almost like a slightly different opponent in a video game that forces you to kind of adapt in a slightly different way, right? right but you're right, bringing right. that back into your classical tradition. Yes, yes. That, Great analogy, yeah. It's funny because I've had a lot of these types of conversations. I've never actually heard anyone articulate it what you said and perhaps there's very few that can actually do mm -hmm. what you do or are conscious about it but that is it almost feels like it's a a microcosm or a metaphor of what's happening in the world today mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. you go from country to country place to place and you adapt and you pick up little you know a little style of this or a little way of speaking of right. that or a little way of doing this and i think it's just as much as we're organisms we're constantly taking in what's the, you know, mm, the stimulus mm. that's around us and trying to adapt and survive and work around that. Right, right. So I got introduced to you and seeing you in a live set with, with Nitin Sani, mm -hmm. who, for me, my first exposure to his music was back around 99, 2000, I think, mm. when he had Homelands out. And it was yeah. a friend of mine that introduced me to this track. And when I first came on, I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't, it was... I was already very much into a lot of the quote-unquote fusion work, but I'd never heard anyone take quite that approach. Right. And it just it feel, it felt like I was seeing the color purple sort of for the first time. Oh, it yeah, unlocked yeah, a bunch yeah. of things. And so fast forward to when almost 10 years later when I first met you, how did you and him come together? What was that? What led to that? Uh, chance, I think. 2003, he was there. He was here in India to record the background score for a film directed by Bharat Bala, the guy who did Vande Matram, okay. you know, all of Rehman's, uh, the big ones. He's a massive filmmaker, great filmmaker. Right. And I happened to work on an ad film for Bala's production house a week before that. And so someone in the production house knew that there was this flute player whom I had just recently worked with and he liked what I did and he was not even the music, music related guy, he was just one of those admin guys who, was, who happened to be at the studio the day I was working on the advert okay. for someone else. A week later, Bala's film, Nitin is scoring, he wants a flute player and this admin guy happens to be there. And he says, I don't even know how it happened, I'm guessing this is how it happened because it was Bala's film. Okay. So I knew it, this is Bala's people who've called me here. Because Nitin didn't have my number, he didn't know me. He, even now he says, I didn't know, someone gave me your numbers, I just got in touch with you. So he called up, Nitin called me, he said, this is Nitin Sony, and I'm, I'm here from, I'm recording a background score at Shantanu studio and would you be free to come and play a session for me? I said, yeah, I'm good. So I'd heard Nitin Sony's name, I hadn't heard his music. You know, I'd read the odd Rolling Stone interview and we had this magazine here at that time called Rave. Okay. Music magazine, quite well-to-do magazine at that point. They, had, they covered a lot of uh, pertinent stuff at that time. So I had read Nitin's name on Rave and, you know, Asian Underground. And the names that were taken alongside his names were synonymous with Asian Underground music, the, 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 the early Talveen Singh, right, yeah. you know. And then maybe my mind got messed up. I read another article about... Uh, Brit Bhangra Pop and I kind of associated Nitin Soni and Talvin Singh with Brit Bhangra Pop in my head. Okay. And I thought, okay, he's one of those things. And I just went to the studio and there's this guy playing this nylon guitar and he's, he's rocking it. He's basically, he's just doing everything, every possible technique. I'm like, who is this guy? 
and then he just he left the guitar on one side he had this little electronic electric piano on the on the other side he started playing on that i'm like no this guy is something different this is not brit bangra pop here I'm yeah <laughs> and uh, it still didn't strike me that this guy and i should i should have checked his music on we didn't have even in 2003 we didn't have access to all that kind of music right. on youtube and internet yeah. it was still early days for us and the and the music from outside of india would cost a, an arm and a leg to buy mm-hmm. you know if we, you wanted a bollywood music cd you wanted to buy you'd get it for like 200 rupees and the same thing if you wanted to buy a michael jackson cd you'd have to shell out like 800 to th- to 1000 rupees which was almost like a session fee for me at that time okay or or any any other music from coming from outside of india right. it would be branded as oh this is music from abroad so you have to pay a premium to it and it was difficult for me to collect music at that time at that point and and then the session unfolded so we did two days of work background score on different cues he had like about 40 50 cues odd and bala also came and he whole oh, and then we got in we got connected uh, on a very personal level because we are both tambrams from tanjaur you know tamilian brahmins yeah, from tanjaur yeah. and and then it it was like one little small oh we found new friends now and and i was the youngest in that time in that lot and i was enjoying the attention they were they were giving me right oh this guy is phenomenal he understands harmony one of the first you know indian musicians i have worked with nitin was all about how he had found this little kid who actually understands harmony and can still play indian music relating and he can he re- reacts to it mm-hmm. with in that style and he was very excited to know me and then couple of years later he came back for the namesake and then that's the time when he really asked me if i would be interested in touring with him that's how many years now i think 15 since 2003 wow. it's been a long long time now and what's that experience been like of working with him and was that your first sort of world touring experience yes so like tell me about this you you know you at one point in time you were experimenting 15 hours a day in your home with all right. these different sounds right and now you're here you know about to start touring for what would turn out to be you know several years mm. what what's that journey been like uh Nitin is one of those people whom I have like the deepest amounts of respects for like deep I I have to say deep respect not not humongous respect deep respect because it's it's it comes from inside me and the two of us have I would like to think we have a lot in common because he's a lot greater musician than I am but we have a lot in common in terms of we are both we both multi-instrumentalists in our own right He's a great producer. I'm I'm also I want him to produce music. So I'm, I I also do programming production. The only thing he doesn't do that I can do is probably sing and play the flute. And the one thing I can't do that he does is play the piano and guitar the way he does. But there are there's a lot of other things that are really common to us. His interest in uh uh fields such as uh quantum physics and and <laughs> mathematics and my love for mathematics in my own way. Right. No, so I find a lot of similarity. I find a little bit of me projected onto him when I see him there. For the longest time, I actually wanted to be him in my own way, you know. When I, so every time I'd sit down to produce, I'd like uh, drop a beat, something which sounded like Homelands or something that sounded like one of his other flamenco tracks. It's that it's that idolizing thing. Yeah. And yeah. Then he broke that thing for me by including 
uh, how do I put it? He actually gave me that respect, uh, which opened out a, a different world for me. You see, being in this in this atmosphere in in the subcontinent, and there's always that looking up and looking down, and you know, if you see that dynamic between people, there's a mm-hmm. deep, there's a lot of contrast between right. strata between demographic between so it was a hierarchy yeah. yeah and we are probably used to it as a historic country with being ruled by kings and being ruled over mm-hmm. even as lately as the british and even now i mean i think we have that thing continuing people have drivers people have servants in their house to help house helps we call them and uh, so we don't we're not still used to not uh, used to just being all equals so for me, that gesture, that whatever he did, he must have just done it because that's who he is. But he gave me that, uh, uh, how do I put it, a f- feeling of being lifted up to his level, the way I saw it. Mm-hmm. He was just being a nice guy, you know. Right. For me, the way that came out was like, oh, okay, he's counting me as one of his own. And the amount of respect he has from what I can do. So this whole this whole thing of touring... And was just it happened to be one of those other things that also happens, but the real dynamic, the real connection happened as human beings, as people, as who we were, as 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 musicians, as people actually. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, the more I would see him work, the more I would see how complex his mind works. And I want to, I want to be like that. But I'm in my own way. My mind has been already very, very complex. Right. Like we just spoke. I mean, as I speak, I'm realizing that okay, actually, I've been. I've been quite evolved in my head. I, I, I never thought, I never realized it. Right. Sometimes you just have to say it out loud to yeah. realize it. And as I speak, in, in fact, today is the time and I'm thinking, okay, well, this mind has been working over time, actually. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just too much that has happened here. Mm-hmm. And I feel, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm a musician. Okay, I need to learn this rag. Today I need to go and learn this rag. I'm trying to keep it simple, but there's too much that's going on here. And it's good that we don't realize it about ourselves. Because yeah. that can consume you in a yep. different way. You don't want to do that. You don't want that, actually. I'm interested. I mean, being around such incredible artists and people who are thinking at that level, but also creating countless people with the music that you've been a part of and have created yourself will have been affected. I and mean, we're talking about the divinity or the transcendence of music. Mm-hmm. Like, countless thousands or millions of people will have been affected in very real deep physiological ways by you know sounds that you've created so being around people like this being around artists like Nathan what have you found personally that you've taken away from that like in terms of your own ability to kind of jump off and take a leap of faith on yourself or even go further beyond what you thought you were capable of Uh, that's a constant effort to go beyond I mean as a musician you see, these people are great because not because of what they can do with their instruments or with their music. They're great because they're humble people. They have surrendered to that, to all the possibilities that music can make them do. Mm-hmm. They are not making that music. And this every, every single great person I've worked with, I mean, for me, they're great because they're, they're firstly seniors. They've had a lot more experience than I have. And the, their reach to, to their audiences is a lot more wide. So that can actually, you know, corrupt your mind. But these people are so humble. Zakir Bhai, mm-hmm. Nitin, 
you know, Rahman sir, Ranjit sir, Ranjit Barur, you know, all of these people have this thing that they've, I've heard them say this in different ways, but they say the same thing, which is to, which is to surrender yourself to the many possibilities that music can make you do. Hmm. As opposed to me trying to do something new in music, no. If the, the day I surrender myself to it, I will float. Let it take me where it wants me to go. That feeling of surrender and that feeling of uh, music being the super set and you just falling into it is what makes them humble. And that's that humility is what brings them and makes them great. Mm. It sounds like what you're describing though is not just music. That's all like almost a life philosophy. It has to be. Sense. It has to be. This is not... It's not a profession. It's not a clerical job. Right. Where you learn, a, you learn something, you learn to do it, and then you pass on the thing to the next guy. It's not that. It's not a table-to-table job. It's not a white-collar job. It's not business even. Even in fact, even business has got these uh, aspects to it, but because business has, there is a, there's a, it's not divine. Mm. Enough said. Yeah. yeah. So, with music, because of the divinity attached to it, whether you believe in God, whether you, whatever your belief system be, being a musician itself takes you on a plateau which is higher, which will make you humble. It has to make you humble. The moment that gets to you, I know of so many people who just suddenly become, oh yeah, I'm a star now. And then they start throwing their weight around. Six months later, they're nowhere to be found. Right. So, which is, why, which is what makes these people the greats that they are. So you mentioned uh, Rahman, sir. So what has... How did that happen? How did how did Ramansar find you? How did you guys end up working together? Because I've seen you now, I think at least once, maybe twice, touring with mm. with, with, with him and his show. There's perhaps hundreds of millions of people that would all aspire and say that he is the one individual that they would aspire to ever work with mm. or learn from, mm. or just they you know it sort of stands as the epitome of what's possible in the modern era with right, music. Right. How did you? come into uh, I must view. I must thank Ranjit sir Ranjit Barot to have introduced me to him and I was working with Ranjit sir before that also since, okay. since I came to Mumbai first two three years later then I, we happened to chance upon being the same band we worked I, I played some solo I was already very scared to you know uh, scared meaning he, he's an intimidating person as a, as a personality he's, he's you know he's got this larger than life uh, aura about him mm-hmm. And I was this meek kid, just 20-something, who had just come down to Mumbai and I've heard a lot about him. And then this, this guy is there, he's with his entire being. It's like the Vishwarupam <laughs> in the Gita, yes, you know. Yes, yes. So when he's sitting on his drum throne and with all his drum kit around him, it looks like that. It's one of those things, you know, it's just wow. That's so, actually a good call. It's, it is a drum throne. Yeah. So it is, yeah. So. Yeah. And then I be, we were working together. I would play gigs with him. I would start, you know, I, I would be this little Indian soloist in his jazz shows. And uh, then he discovered my, uh, the other side to me, my music, which is my programming, my arrangements, and my writing, my singing skills. So he was already, he's, he constantly taps into these young energies around him. So he, he said, uh, he would give me work based on my abilities as opposed to just me being a flute player. And then this uh, NAIT happened, uh, uh, the tour on which One Heart the film was made. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think AR was looking for a more concise band 
as opposed to bringing his the usual the the big production that he travels with right because he wanted this auditorium kind of shows in 2015 we did that NAIT thing when we came to Toronto as well yes. if I'm not yeah I, I, yeah that's when I'd seen you Sony yeah. Center yeah. yeah Sony Center yeah, yeah. and uh, it just happened to me Sony Center I just said Center I, I wouldn't do that Center, Sony Center. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, it's, it's just the influence yeah, that yeah. I'm talking about. So when I said yeah, the I'm, earlier point of, of yes. us being greedy and, you know, just when you go into this, you want to blend into there. Yeah. Anyway. So NAIT happened and during that time, Ranjit sir just pushed me into playing Ableton, into triggering samples, doing other stuff and play all your flute parts and take over uh, a bit of the sound check duties as well. So he, you know, almost... Uh, 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 made me his his extension in what happened during that tour and afterwards. So I landed up assisting him in every other aspect of that production, wow. of production. To such a degree where there were these two shows in uh, a couple of years ago in India where Ranjit sir just said, hey, Ashwin will handle it. And at the end of those two shows, I remember we just, I was in, already inside the elevator and air sir suddenly walked in. So we had to just leave it open for him. So I said, okay, I'm going to go out now. Because you go. I, w I don't want to be there. He said, no, 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 stand inside. It was a very small elevator with three people and we were just four of us. So I was just standing there and he suddenly patted on my back. You know. Good job, man. I was worried because Ranjit's not there. You really did a great job. It's sounding all fantastic. Thank you. Wow. And for a man of very, 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 very few words, for him to say all that to me was like a blessing, actually. It's, it's, it's like your guru's blessing you. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he also kind of, you know, it's, the way he doesn't speak much anyway, we all know that. But whatever little he does, you can sense that, you know, he values your presence in that band. And he really has that uh, gratitude for how you're doing Right. what you're doing for him and during for the music. What do you think has made him uniquely, I don't want to say successful, because I mean, he, he's truly great in what he's been able to create, mm. but what, what makes him stand out from other composers, on, like in any country? His like, spiritual what, what? connection. One word, two words. Yeah. His spiritual connection. You can see the man is connected 24-7, and the times that he's not connected, he just withdraws himself connects and comes back. So he's patching in and out he's of the matrix. He's constantly doing that. His spiritual connection, not just yeah. the matrix. Yeah. His, his straight connection to whatever it is that you or I want to think the supreme power is. He's consistently connected there. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste uh, his energies in things that don't have to be done or said or heard or been with. Mm -hmm. He just, he's thinking music, living music, eating, sleeping, wearing, doing anything music. He seems constantly curious. I'm always amused to see every conceivable new instrument that's invented. Yeah. Somehow he'll get his hands on it. Like yeah. He's still got that curiosity of a child yeah. in, in a matter. Wow. In, in doing all that, I mean, you've worked with a lot of artists, some of whom I've gotten to know and all of whom I appreciate as artists. I was mentioning I'd just spoken with Nikki mm -hmm. uh, a little while back um, and she had a whole story about how music happened in her life and whatnot. Mm -hmm. She's quite something. Junita Gandhi is from 
my home, I guess, yeah, you know, yeah. like in uh, Toronto and Brampton. She's my goddaughter. Yeah? Yeah, Janita is. Yeah. I'd like to go public saying that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's the feeling I have. If I ever had a, if I had a daughter and if she grew up to be this musician, then that would be Janita Gandhi. Wow. Yeah, she's, I, I remember seeing her years ago at some function singing. I didn't know who she was and then she started singing. I was like, where is she from? Like, where, where, where did this come from? And then, you know, I mean, it's, it's no surprise. I mean, I think certain talent will kind of rise and it'll, you just can't hold it back. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I've appreciated about Rahman, sir, at least from the outside of it, is that he constantly seems to nurture new promising talent. Well, and I'm sure it's more than just the talent. It's the attitude. It's the, it's the, the, the grit, the hard work, yeah. all of those things. But, um, you know, just to be able to kind of give someone that space to breathe and shine, mm. that's something, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was mentioning earlier uh, Sid uh, Sriram, who mm. I just, I came across completely randomly. I think someone had tweeted about who do you think is a great singer, and then they mentioned this guy, Sid Sriram, and then I checked out one of his songs. It was like one of his originals, and then I thought, I think he also did some covers of uh, Nirvana at some show. Right. And then... He launches out of doing sort of a soul R&B version of Teen Spirit by Nirvana. And then he goes into this crazy Karnataka lap, mm-hmm. but just very short doses of it. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't expecting it. And right. it just, it was like a smack upside the face. I was like, well, where did this come from? This, yeah. But, it, but each, each style was so genuinely, like you could tell he was from America mm-hmm. in, his, in his style. Mm. But then he flips it completely. You know, it's just, it, it's so interesting the time that we live in that, all these different artists are finding different ways of expressing themselves right. in their own unique way. Mm. In the same way that you were telling me about, like, you know, just finding your own voice on the flute. Absolutely. Um, is very unique. Because, mm. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of Bansri players, but no one plays quite like you. Mm. Um, uh, in the same way, I, I had the same conversation with, uh, with Arif Dervish when we first met. Mm. His, his approach to the tabla is also quite different. A very different, yeah. Like, he, he's, he thinks, he, he was telling me, like, he kind of, he thinks in grooves. Yeah. Right? Which is a very, I mean, it seems on the surface like a fairly simple concept, but like to really get into a groove is a very different thing. Yeah, he thinks like a drummer more than think, thinking, of, maybe he thinks he thinks like a groove, but the way I've studied him, he thinks like a drummer. He doesn't think like a tabla player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- and maybe that's just the environment not, he was and in. He thinks and like an electronic musician. He doesn't think like an Indian musician. Oh, I, when he, uh, so that one night I was telling you he came over um, and we were jamming. So I have this one 88-key uh, digital piano that mm-hmm. actually was owned by Oscar Peterson before. Wow. I know, it's, it's the instrument's wow. plus. I can't play anything like him. Uh, um, but I bought it, the shop that I bought it from, he, his estate had actually sold it back right. to, to the shop after he passed away because he lived in, uh, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And when they told me this Oscar Peterson's, I thought, I'm like, there's no way, like, you guys are lying. But they showed me the receipt. So I've got a receipt, the original receipt when he bought it and then the, re- the receipt when he sold it back. But anyway, so that, that keyboard's there. And I, I only usually use it just for the piano. I like the roll-in piano sounds. Mm-hmm. Arif just started messing around on the keyboard. I don't know, like, what he was, he was messing around with different patches. He got so deep into it yeah. so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and he was getting sounds out of it that I didn't even know the thing could make, mm-hmm. right? Because I just haven't spent that time. Right. But it's, he only spent, like, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Intuitive, yeah. But he just unlocked, right. like, this whole other world from it. And right. I, it was just kind of a reminder to me, like... There's something else happening at play. Like when I think there's a connection people have with what they do, whether it's art or painting or music or it could be poetry or it could it could be any number of things that people do. But when you find that connection, it's you can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm curious, I guess, like now that we've talked a fair bit about, you know, music, but I'm also curious to know 
what role do you see music having in today's life? Let me back up for a moment. I find people don't have an appreciation at all for how things are created, mm. right? So there's this entitlement in society today that everything that's digital, it should be free. Music, videos, everything mm. should be free. If there isn't a million likes on it, you know, in a couple of days, it's not worth paying attention to. Right. And that thing that they might be liking may have been turned around in five minutes and it was essentially a manufactured piece of music versus mm -hmm. somebody that's actually invested of themselves. Mm. So music is more, uh, there's more music today than there's ever been. Mm. More people are making it, more people are creating, recording, distributing it than ever. Right. And in some ways I think there's probably more great music, and it's a very subjective term, there's probably more great music than there's ever been, but there's also a lot more terrible music that just doesn't have much merit to it. Yeah. So in that context where so many people who aren't necessarily musicians or haven't been exposed enough to it, they can't judge necessarily what's quote-unquote good uh -huh. versus not good. Uh -huh. And so where does, like, where does music kind of sit in this space? What role does it play for us like moving forward in changing the world or affecting the world? Music, like water, I said, it's not music's prerogative to change the world. It's the world's prerogative to take music as it is or not. Music in its own, in its own existence is, is all pervasive. Even the not so good, quote unquote, not good music is also music in mm -hmm. its own way. Like if you say, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just the wrong part of music maybe. I don't know. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. If, 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 if you look at it like a patch of land, it's the, it's the more uh, fertile piece as, versus, versus the unfertile patch of land. It's maybe that. But with due respects to all of that, there are uh, one, yeah, like I said, it's not music's prerogative to make sure the world is good. Okay. Music exists for the good of the world, but it's how you treat and what we take and, you know, and give back that will decide. It's, it's the transaction that decides what happens eventually, that decides what the result is going to be. If the transaction goes sour, the result will go sour. The transaction, the intent on the transaction is good. By the transaction, I mean all the millions of consumers, the millions of creators, everything that's going on, the, 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 the whole quantum of it, the quantity of it, the magnanimity of the quantity itself. The there's a, there's a transitional transaction that's going on right now, mm -hmm. which only time will tell how, and it's not in your or my hands to, you know, to say that it's going wrong or it's not going right or whatever it is. We, we can just observe and feel good or bad about it and then let time decide what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But the role of music, the mu music itself is existent already. Okay. We are not creating anything. It's there in, 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 our, in our universe. It, the, the, the element of music is humongous. It's even more than prayer, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. So, it's what we tap into. It's like sun and the energy from sun, solar energy. So music doesn't necessarily have a prerogative to change or affect anything. Music is just existing and it it's, it's our choice. It is there. So as an artist, do you believe people who are artists or creatives that have any sort of a, a platform or no platform at all, do they have or feel a different responsibility to have an impact on the world in some positive way? Is there or should there even be a greater sense of responsibility? I think we're confusing two things here. One is... If you are an artist, you are an artist. You are, we are all born artists. Mm -hmm. If there is art in us, we are already an artist. 
I don't need a record publishing deal or you know anything right. like that yes. to validate my position. I'm a, I'm an artist mm-hmm. by birth. Now, within my ability and my understanding and my uh, knowledge or my experience and my output, by virtue of doing what I do, I'm already creating a, a source for inspiration to a certain number of people. If I've played, say, if I if I've put out a recording of something that I've really, really played out of my heart, and 300 people have heard it, for example, and there's no other views after that on, let's say, YouTube. Mm-hmm. That music, my intention. See, you see how disconnected and how how uh, how I see this whole thing. My intention was for not even one person to listen to it. My intention was for me to experience that moment in music. Mm-hmm. I have done my bit. That I recorded it and uploaded it onto YouTube was the human in me saying, you want some attention. I wanted attention. I wanted some people to listen to me. I had 300 views. I'm feeling very happy about it. I had 300 views. I can't compete with, say, a million view video or a multi-billion view video. I can't compete with T-series and the kind of music they put out. Mm-hmm. But that, if I had to do that, I should have been gotten. I should have been better at it. I should have gone and done that music and gotten better at it. So now we're doing. We're looking at two things. One, is it the is it the kind of music that you want to do that you want to do, or is it the million views that affect you? Mm-hmm. What is it? Because they're they're two different beasts. And maybe this is the dilemma we always find ourselves in, and not just in music, in in business, and mm-hmm. just the decisions we make in life. But if one is an artist that has a certain power or command, able to create certain emotions mm. or drive certain feelings, and you know you have the power to create something that will either have a positive or negative impact mm. on people, does an artist in that moment have a unique responsibility to make that choice? Or is it just they are who they are and they aren't responsible for what the outcomes are? There is the element of responsibility in there. But whether one chooses to be responsible or not is a choice they make within their circumstance, within in that situation, at that point in time in their lives. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a stupid driving mistake. You know, this is yeah. biker who just cuts, cuts across into your lane and then he gets hit. God forbid. But it's a choice he's made and he has been irresponsible about on that choice. Whether he's made it consciously or because he was thinking of some place he had to get to and he was a little lost, he made that decision, is anybody's guess. But bringing that analogy here, if I'm an artist, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know I'm an artist until I'm told so. But I'm still doing music, mm-hmm. even before that. Right. So, that, at that point, life doesn't give me that sense of responsibility towards other beings. At that point, I'm just enjoying it like, like a child would enjoy a toy. I'm enjoying music, I'm enjoying singing, I'm enjoying playing that instrument and discovering things. And it's just that at that point. But when I start, and we don't consciously create stuff. It happens. Now this is something that we need to tap and understand it. Because if we have a certain conditioning and understanding of what we do, I will never say I'm creating something. And not because the word creating is wrong. It's just the way I understand creation. I cannot create anything. Mm-hmm. So what would you call that? 
it's it's passing through me i'm a medium it passes through experiencing me experiencing it yes maybe yeah. maybe that moment there is a calling like if you if, if it's like it's like feeling thirst you feel thirsty you walk to that place you pick up that water you know and if you don't know where that water is you're going to go and search for it buy water whatever you are going to do you do that hmm. and you quench your thirst and it's that process so for me i'm that i i there's there's a calling if i have to if i have that if i if i if i'm sitting here and if i'm if something's coming to my mind i'll go and pick my flute up i'm going to start playing something mm-hmm. and what happens at that point i will not plan you were telling me about this road trip or road trips that you've been taking recently see so you drove from mumbai all the way up to varanasi you were mm-hmm. saying right and so about about how how much distance would that be i didn't do it in one stretch uh but the whole distance is about i think 3000 kilometers one way okay so that's because a, of the route i took i went to i i went to bhuvaneshwar and then kolkata and then and then what i i'm curious in driving across this country and for a lot of people who haven't been to india or haven't traveled it much it, what you don't realize is india is today is seen as one country but it's basically like packing all of europe's diversity and more into one country right with as many languages spoken in this one country or probably more than what's spoken in this country than in all of the rest of the planet right right different foods different dialects different traditions it's as sort of inclusive perhaps as any ancient culture could be in terms mm. of all of the different religious traditions and whatnot but driving across the country as you did by yourself and making all these stops what did you learn about people and what did you learn about yourself in this it humbled me no end humbled me by humbled me i said i would say i'm i i live in mumbai i work in an industry which is driven by competition which is driven by uh money and relevance or manufactured relevance i live in an, i i work in that industry uh apart from being a classical musician of course and like uh and the city itself is driven by money and when you put money in the equation everything becomes uh everything becomes uh transactional it becomes like it 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 becomes uh how do i put, what's the word i'm looking for it becomes like a uh, uh, uh it is fake it's business when you put money into an equation it becomes it, there's a give and take to everything mm-hmm. in the city and the one thing i realized about it's not the people at all it's just the way the city functions the people are not bad the same people when they go back to their uh, you know hometowns or villages they they become who they were mm-hmm. but when they are here there is that sense of urgency and uh, mm, i don't know if how, how i i i'm i'm at a loss for the word right i i can't think of the word right no, now no but it, it's a race it's a it's a competition it is, it is. yeah and you have to get away from it and for me uh you know uh, contrary to popular belief oh you're a musician you you, you the, the the very fact that you play music must give you peace and soul and yes it does but when i'm playing music at home when i'm doing it for myself when there is no transaction involved there's a lot of peace and the odd times when you meet you know when you work with some great musicians you do have that you do have that feeling but everything else around and before and beyond it 
is stressful in this city and for you to get out of that stress for me to do that at least and to answer one one half of the question as to what has the how has it changed me how has it affected me i've learned to look at stress as something that i don't need every each one of us deals with this in our own way i guess and for me this drive really changed me it kind of uh, you know i had i would i would drive on an average of 15 hours 15 to 18 hours every single time i would start start driving that included a couple of hours of sleep as well pulling over in some place just sleeping it, it you know and sitting at these uh, street side tea vendors just sitting there and just pulling out my flute sometimes i wouldn't even do that i'd just listen to the birds chirping you know the odd truck passes by and some conversation local dialects local languages mm-hmm. people just the villagers coming to have chai there and they're sitting there and they're just chatting away and they're having this gossip time they're doing something else and they're laughing and you know it, it was so amusing and the the simple nature of that actually brought me went took me back to my childhood as children we are so pure and we we are not you know you, you know who we are we have yeah. you have kids i have a yeah. son so when when uh, those children got us to revisit our childhood actually mm. when they yes, they yeah. grew up agreed and uh, you know this whole thing about the simplicity and the and the and the the the, the lack of an expectation mm. for everything you know when you do something you expect something so you, you know i i was calling up somebody that day i said how are you man like yeah, yeah i'm i'm well i'm very fine i'm i'm good i'm good and so yeah why did you call me i said i just asked i called to ask how you are there's nothing oh okay okay i thought there was some work something i had i thought there was some session happening uh, so that that need for giving and taking and transactional yeah was missing they were just there for the chai they had this long conversation they were laughing out you know people with white soiled dhotis and kurtas and big pagdis just sitting there enjoying their chai and one bd maybe i don't mm-hmm. know and they having a great time and they have nothing to lose there's no time running away farmers maybe i don't know they have farmlands like a couple of kilometers away from there and a bit of the forest extending on this side there's birds there's nature all over there's no pollution even though it was uh, sunny it wasn't it wasn't sultry it wasn't it was an unmanageable right and they had these coconut thatch roofs under which there was one boy who was making this chai there was other woman who was making some food for them just for themselves that wasn't for sale they would only sell the tea and i would just pull out my flute i was playing they they were listening there for some time and then they walked off how did people like when you pull out the the flute and start playing like how did people respond it was nonchalant they didn't they didn't really they were curious the kids were curious kids would come stand there you know with one finger on their mouth and then you know that little kids yeah. coming curious what is he doing and also because they probably saw my long hair and they thought i'm from the film industry i i work in films or something like that right. the typical you know long haired uh, flashily dressed i wasn't yeah. flashily dressed obviously <laughs> but you know, even a jeans and a white shirt would be flashy for them yeah so and then that curiosity once that once they got past that say a couple of minutes into what i was playing and then they would just resume like okay acha lag raha hai mm you know something nice okay and then they would just smile and they they go their ways there was no oh wow someone's here and there was no there's no that that element 
and in any place actually in the deepest places of like Madhya Pradesh and where else was I uh, just before Bhuvaneshwar there is this place uh, just after Chhattisgarh called Sambalpur before Sambalpur also there was one other place where I stopped and people were just normal they were just welcoming they were warm they wanted you to feel welcome every single place every single place one other place I had some uh, really good food at 3 in the morning incredible food and that Dhaba guy he just came you know he gave me a plate of salad before even I placed an order before uh -huh. even you know I just said Pani de de na. he got some water and he gave me a plate of salad Khalo. like fresh radish ملکھاؤکی Andakari also. I had like some six rotis after that. <laughs> it was so, what you Because you were saying you've also, you've done this sort of thing, your shorter trips in South India and whatnot. As you've done all this, and you've, you've driven solo for the most part, what have you learned about this country in doing that? I wish there was, I could assimilate it in one line or one answer. It never stops to surprise me. This land doesn't stop surprising me at all. Yes, the world itself is extremely beautiful. I've traveled to some really, really beautiful places, Canada included, one of my most favorite countries. But uh, it's like, you know, if you speak in the language of the country, in the there are uh, sophisticated women supremely fashionably dressed women, there are uh, stunningly good-looking women, and there is this Gaunki Chori, who just by the way she is, is so attractive and so beautiful. She doesn't have to do anything. And with all these women, and I'm not discriminating, but it's just the way this Gaunki Chori feels. In its simplicity, there's a certain attraction to it, and this country's got that. It's just the people, the especially outside of the big cities i'm saying i mean mm -hmm. like we discussed earlier right. all the big cities have that similar characteristic of yes yeah. you know the, 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 the element of fake mm -hmm. but it's the interiors which small chai walas onwards to farmers to uh, truckers and uh, uh, off the street you know you have these small little temples with nobody there it's just the deity and just one small thing, just go there and sit. You know, it's 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 the it's the, I think it's, it's all of what you said earlier about the diversity. And plus the absorption and and the, uh, and the, oneness in the whole diversity, because every twenty kilometers your dialect changes, in India. Wow. On an average, every twenty kilometers the dialect changes. If it's Hindi, dialect of Hindi changes, and. On an average of every 400-500 kilometers, language changes. And language and dialect within that language. So there is, there is just this humongous information of, you know, all of these elements, food, 
but the love doesn't change the affection doesn't change they are so warm and welcoming anywhere you go except the big cities mm-hmm. let's give it to them they are you know in a rut which they have they've created for themselves but the smaller places they have nothing they have no expectancy of you know, no expectation right and uh, so they have nothing to lose you know like you said what was that you said earlier kuch there's nothing to lose they come from a place of abundance, abundance yeah yes. yeah and also that like you if you give a little bit of yourself you're not going to be any worse off right yeah. like everyone everyone benefits india's fascinating to me because i mean not just because it's birthplace of my family mm-hmm. and you know in in many ways it feels like roots even though i was born and raised in canada but it's somehow straddling future and past at the same time it's right. straddling whatever east and west whatever those mean and they have less and less meaning like today than ever but yeah, yeah. but all of these different worlds are all happening all at once the incredible spread of the richest of the rich in the world to poorest of the poor mm-hmm. all being on the same street right and being able to go from like place to place and just realize how different and yet similar people are mm-hmm. at least in my travels there's something particularly unique about that and i i feel First of all the incredible amount of talent that's here mm-hmm. is just phenomenal in everything from whether it's technology to music to art there's just so much that comes out of here and it feels like if it just had more of a culture around cultivating and nurturing itself it would be in in a in a much different place there's this thing about cities and I, a, a friend of mine had said this to me years ago he's like people don't live They in exist. countries they live in cities yeah, and yeah. he meant cities loosely oh, yeah, could be yeah, towns yeah. because you could live in Brooklyn, New York, and that's a very different thing than living in Topeka, Kansas or somewhere right, else. Yeah, yeah, Now you're in the same country, but where are you? People in New York would have a lot more in common with people in Mumbai than mm-hmm. they would with people in Topeka, Kansas right. in many regards. So I think that one thing I think traveling just opens you up to the similarities that mm. we have between us. Mm. But I think it's interesting that you would just venture across the country and, and do that. I've been meaning to do that since I was 12. So now I'm realizing it now. Every winter it's 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 been a fixed thing that I need to go somewhere in India just drive. And the more I drive the more I get to know these roads the more I'm going to take shorter pit stops like uh, 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 short, uh, more frequent pit stops. I want to stop at every other village I'm going to stop. Mm-hmm. Even if it going if it takes me like over 3 days to reach the next place. Were you just going or were you like documenting any of this for your own I wish purposes? I had the I didn't I didn't I didn't want to actually in my head of this experience my first drive this was my first longest drive so far it's like second I think yeah the December one was the first one but then that was like purely Amritsar and back and that one but this one there was a purpose to it and I wanted to it was more of an inward journey for me than the outward the actual driving itself so this once I did not but next time now I have all the equipment and i was actually carrying my cameras and stuff i did document a couple of uh, uh places this chilika lake i went to in orissa and then i looked it up online apparently it's the second largest lagoon in the world okay wow and there were lots of migratory birds there but i couldn't i wasn't thinking like a filmmaker i just stood there I I was overawed by the sunrise happening at that point so I just you just experienced I just it. shot yeah. something of me playing and then before I knew it it was over and I had to edit everything I didn't have a, my laptop wasn't functioning I had to come back here install the premiere pro again and stuff 
so there was i didn't have internet on while i was driving so there was just too many things playing on my head i wish i had a little more goal oriented you know drive this time i will mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to i'm easing into it and i'm in no rush anyway i had a chance to meet your son earlier and he's really sweet he's 9 mm-hmm. right so as a father the state of the world today how would you describe yourself are you an optimist are you a realist how do you see yourself today and what would you want for your son you know in future generations as a big question i know i want him to be well for sure like any well meaning parent would but the way i see this world the way i see life itself is very different from popular perception i can't put it into a concept as such but the way i see it is now is the moment there is no other truth this is all there is this is all there is and this is all there will be like gulzar sahab had this beautiful poem i can't uh, recite it verbatim but i can it's 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 got something to do with when you're traveling by train you feel the world is passing by you it's actually the world stays where it is you're passing on top of it on, mm-hmm. on the tracks right that's what the train journey yes. is about he talks that he took that and he used the concept of time ke waqt chalta hai ya hum waqt pe chalte hain hmm and that you know made me think otherwise i mean like yeah we are walking time still actually time actually is standing still we are passing through it is what one way of looking at it right so for me this is the moment what happened yesterday has already happened and it's only a memory right now yeah it doesn't exist anymore it doesn't exist yeah. unless we truly discover those multiverse theories and we are we are we are sure that it exists mm-hmm. i'm very inclined to believe in that and what is going to happen so human mind works very differently with the way it perceives life yeah and that's still insular you need to open it out and see there are other ways of perceiving life if the day you start looking at it the way i do you won't be sad you won't feel all those negative emotions that you do otherwise you will be in the moment you will feel negative emotion if there is something wrong if you've lost a loved one or something like that has happened you will feel you know sad but naturally it is yeah, it's an yeah. emotion but you won't sulk in that you won't think about you won't have negative feelings like you know nobody loves me or uh things people get into depressions for right know? yeah you won't feel that you live in this moment you learn to forgive people more easily you won't hold grudges and you because now is the moment what has happened has happened i don't need to hold a grudge against that person next time he meets me he or she meets me i don't need to you know uh, show that i'm still angry and there in the, the the root cause of all that is ego mm-hmm. and you will learn to let go of that it's a slow process but the moment you see why it is and the more the more you think about it the more you start understanding it it will open out this new world and you will your well-being will be better it's ama- i mean a, a lot of people have been saying this i mean like eckhart tolle's the power of now i mean his entire book about it but this idea that living in the moment that this is all that exists and you should just be here mm. i think most people know this intellectually we know this we we realize it but we don't, don't necessarily act on it i'm going to teach my son that to answer your question quickly i'm going to teach my son this that is the one thing that will help him through his journey of life it needs to be i wish i was taught this earlier i would have had a 
more emotionally you know better well being uh, my life would have been that do you believe that things happen for a reason that maybe that realization came into your life now and energies i believe in energies i believe in energies very strongly and uh, as i reflect say even the last whatever odd years that hari haran uh, example that i told you that i was listening to him and i was constantly playing with it and i was imagining that mujhe hari haran ke sath kaam karna hai mujhe zakir bhai ke sath baithna hai stage pe it happened at some point in the future but i was i was throwing those energies out to the universe i was throwing those mm. thought i read somewhere is actually a form of energy the human thought is a form of energy it's a it's a wave it's a frequency mm-hmm. thought is a frequency so really really be careful what you think a thought will manifest itself physiologically within you at the bare minimum let alone what it'll but a thought do is a frequency look at yeah. it this way you're sending out frequencies it is going and matching other frequencies it goes and meets frequencies which are in its own range and similar thoughts that's why you meet similar similar minded people mm-hmm. you like those people you don't like those people you know if you if you if you look at thought as a frequency which means i have thrown that frequency somewhere which has rebounded itself and you know come back to be what it became eventually mm-hmm. that i was staying st- sitting in every single performance with hari bhai on stage i'm thinking you know what this is what i had thought of at one point so i i i rarely ever push out a negative thought anymore i can't because now i'm 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 used to doing this i've practiced doing this now right right so i want to do this and this is what i'm going to teach my son i don't want to teach him competition he is already not competitive and i'm very happy about it because life is not about competition mm-hmm. sports is about competition right music is not about competition i'm not out to be in at war with someone mm-hmm. i want to play music and if i have to play it with someone else i'm happy i am not out to prove a point so i want to teach him all those things i want i want kids to know this in today's times because thanks to news you know the channels that the 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 shit that we get fed yeah day in day out the negativity that already exists and there there seems a pattern to it which is almost you know it's it's like a conspiracy against us against mm-hmm. humanity and there are these few people you know you we i do hear those theories i want children of today's times to to know it and to say this is fake this is not real that is real and for them to learn to live the moment as opposed because they are doing that now yeah they get conditioned to yeah, yeah. undo all this yeah things. we have to get them to unlearn this conditioning yeah, yeah yeah they get as children they live like the way they should be my daughter is always creating stuff every day at school she'll have created four or five new things sometimes she'll like build a, a vending machine sometimes she's the cfo of the small shop that her and her friends have run mm-hmm. she writes and illustrates these books on construction paper almost every day like some days she'll come home with like four or five books we've got a stack at home of all this stuff and some of these stories are hilarious and they they're picking out little bits and pieces of stuff that she's mm-hmm. picked out from her day but she's constantly creating and she's very in touch with the fact that she can create something whether it's a book or painting or drawing she was in the studio and we made this track called Jazz Flute Loops. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of these like old bonsries that I've just been picking up over the years mm-hmm. sitting at home. She just started playing just whatever she could. She played this one out of tune loop over and over, <laughs> but I'm like it was cute. And so I I, I sampled it and it was, mm. it was perfectly 72 BPM. 
then we sat down and at the time I had three monitors in my studio and it took me years to figure out how all this stuff worked which I explained to her I'm like okay this is logic this is where I'm doing the arranging here's the samples and here's the plugins mm -hmm. within like 10 minutes she's like daddy can you take that sound that one I like can you put it through that whirly thing and then put it here I'm Aww. like okay so we ended up making this whole track so she played she beatboxed she played her little flute loop she played wow. the synths everything I laid down just a bass line and like a trap beat mm -hmm. that's all I gave her and then she says this one thing that I really like when she was lecturing her brother about evolution, which sounds funny, but she said, this is not just your world, it is everybody's world. Wow. And this was a thought that wasn't something I gave to her. Right. She just picked it up somehow. Hmm. So we put that in the, in the track, and then I made a video of like a collage of all the stuff that she had. But she's always seeing me creating stuff. Mm -hmm. she sees, like, she's seeing me getting this podcast yeah. off the ground. She's seeing me making music and whatnot. She sees my wife doing the same thing, always either creating experiences or mm. pulling together teams of people or just creating. So she's aware that she can create. And so she does, but she doesn't keep thinking, what if I'm not good? What if it's not good enough? Like, what if no one likes it? Those are the thoughts mm. that crush us, right? Instead yeah. of being in the moment of, I feel like doing this, Enjoy I'm just going to do it. Enjoy the process as yeah. opposed to, in, you know, expecting validation or any certification from people. Yeah. You just, that's, that's what life is all about. Absolutely. That also connects to your previous question about how the whole music industry is working today. Mm. You enjoy the process, be honest about it. That, that was my post all about just a couple of right, minutes yeah. ago. You be honest about what you're doing, be true to what you've done, enjoy that process. And by because it is supposed to be put out for the world to listen to, just put it out. But the moment we start thinking, oh, oh the other song had 3000 views on it or 4 million views on it and I've only got... 20 you're expecting people so you, then in which case you have not manufactured something that people want if you want yeah. people to like what you've done you should make what they like if you want to do what you want to do then you shouldn't expect people to like it if they like it well and good if they don't fair enough and this is where I think there's a catch-22 because I believe most of what and not just music music art TV mm -hmm. film clothing products all the stuff that's sold to us the world has oriented itself around this idea of scarcity and fear. You need to be fairer, you need to be richer, you need to drive this car, you need to live in that we're neighborhood. We're being brainwashed. Yeah, we're being brainwashed. But in brainwashing us, when you are afraid and you're trying to close that fear gap or that gap between what you think you should be and mm. what you are, mm. you will buy, you right. will spend. Yeah. And it's that gap that creates the opportunity to spend which drives the economy, which yeah. drives... A handful of people to control as much as they do and the moment that we are actually just content like these people are sitting like mm. you know at a roadside yeah. chai stand somewhere mm. in India those people aren't buying all this stuff right they're not necessarily less happy they're not targeting right? those people even they're, they're not targeting them but like so but if they did they would have to use fear and uncertainty yes. and stuff to the do the moment that. you realize this disparity the moment you realize this disconnect that you don't need it if you choose not to need it right yeah right and the moment you call their bluff, it's basically calling their bluff. Yes. So why can't we, as responsible parents in our own right, and as responsible citizens of the world, expose this side of living? I don't need to call anybody's bluff, and I don't want the economy to fall down, and I don't want the businesses to not do well. Let them do well for whatever they are doing well. For all those people whom we care, we can get them make them aware of this simultaneous mm. lifestyle that we can follow. Simple living, high thinking as you know they mm -hmm. used to have it. 
and the world isn't the same anymore. What was the same? What what is that same? It is this simple living, high thinking. Yeah. It's just don't even high think. Just live simple. That'll well, yeah. You know, take and care I think of everything. I'd like to be able to take it a step further because when it comes to music and entertainment and art, I believe we hear something and it resonates with us mm-hmm. or resonates with a lot of people. Right. And now that becomes a style or trend. And right. now the next person comes along is like, how do I make something that people will like because that works or let me copy or replicate or somehow mimic this? As opposed to that thing resonated because it was authentic. Exactly. Right? And so if we're kind of more focused on being authentic and real and honest in what we do, it may be that a million people like it and may not be, but shouldn't, that shouldn't stop us from creating. Right. But I think the thing is, we actually have underestimated how refined and sophisticated people are by selling them the worst piece of land, like you were putting mm-hmm. it, right? You see this a lot, I think, particularly in, in, in hip-hop. There's incredible hip-hop artists with incredible lyrics that have a message. You can even dance to it. You can move to it. It's got all of those things about it. Mm. But then there's a lot of stuff that's just nonsense. And you can tell that there's a handful of record executives who want to keep a certain group of people downtrodden. They want to sell you a certain group of products. It's a very specific contrived narrative. Mm. Everything about it is negative for the people creating it and the people consuming it. Yes. And yet you could give the same people that are consuming it, if you decondition them a little bit, you could give them something that's a much better alternative and they would appreciate it and they would enjoy it. So I think people will buy what we sell them. Most people don't have an idea of what they like necessarily in music. If you're not a musician, you don't know what music you like, but you hear something and it resonates or it doesn't. Counterpoint, sorry to cut you, is how you sell it. Sure, of course. So, and we have come to find ourselves in a pattern where all the negative things are being sold so positively that they are Mm -hmm. being sold. Yes. And all the good things are not being sold so positively, so convincingly, so people are not convinced in buying that. It's also the other side of the coin where you may have a great product. You may have something which is socially relevant, which is, you know, which is, which is required in today's mm-hmm. times. But if you don't have the right marketing strategy to it, you won't be able to sell it. So for all those up-and-coming musicians who are not finding their million hits and who are not finding their views to go viral, I am not experienced because I don't have a viral video yet. But if you really think that your music is great and it should have gone viral, there's something you've missed in the process of marketing. Mm-hmm. It's not your music, so don't doubt your music, don't doubt your ability, don't be bogged down by that. That's actually a good message. Yeah, for sure. It's something else in the process that you're missing and you don't need to know the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Which is why the system of publishing and the system of, of marketing actually came into existence. So you find like-minded people who would love your music and would love to market your stuff. Mm-hmm. Get them to work on, on your side. And today it's a time of guerrilla working and everybody's yeah. working yeah. in teams of two or three people. What are startups all about? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's that. So you find like-minded people, you find those energies, which is why I said I believe in energy. Agreed. You find the energies that will work well with your energies. You may have to, you know, tinker a little bit here and there just to make it no fit but once it fits it it works like magic because the other person can't do what you can do and you can't do what the other person can right, do right right and with, with by coming together you guys create yeah, and, and and just by evolutionary design i mean we are social creatures we exactly. we function best in small groups of people right and we should have complementarily different skill sets like no one person is going to be able to do it all 
that would be kind of a boring way to live as to well. Exist. <laughs> I, I think just getting back to what you were talking about, getting your, imparting on your son this importance of being in the now, I think that's actually an important lesson for me personally. I'd like to, beyond that, I would love to be able to kind of show my kids and just, you know, new generations in general, this is what goes into creating something. This is how these things work. And I think if they're just at least a little bit more aware of the process of how things come into being, hmm. then, you know, throwing away garbage in the streets or just the way that we cost technology every few months right. or even just expecting that a song to download should be free. If they appreciate that someone spent several weeks or months working on this one particular song or piece of art and before that they spent 10 or 20 years practicing and rehearsing just to be able to have the skill to do that in two or three weeks just to give even a little bit of appreciation I think for how things come into being I think would help future generations just be a little bit more wise about the decisions that they're making too. I agree with you and I have something to add to that. I, uh, that process of marketing that I was talking about so I'm really surprised that people actually feeling entitled to have uh, to to download music for free. They think they should be getting it for free. On one hand, they haven't. They the uh, you know the uh, generation before them in their house hasn't sensitized them about how music is made. It is their responsibility too, but it is our responsibility too. Mm-hmm. So now, if we I, I saw this interview of Steven Tyler Yeah. with, uh, what's that guy's name? It's very famous on YouTube, but they, they cuss around throughout the interview and they're like, they basically... Oh, with Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The one where he talks about Napster coming in first yes, and then, yeah, yeah. you know, spoiling the whole thing for us uh, yeah. musicians. And an extension to that, you stop, you can't fight the digital evolution, Right. But you can devise new strategies. We are humans. We are, we are improvisers. We are musicians. We are improvisers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Improvise your strategy. Think of how differently you can sell. There may be a million other ways to sell. Yes, to go to a universally recognized platform such as an iTunes or a Spotify would give you that presence amongst all the big artists. And, you know, everybody swarms to the... It's like going to the big marketplace. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes there. Every product is available there. Everybody is free to sell there. The free market, uh, uh, the right. common marketplace, as opposed to having your own stall in your own uh, maybe a street, where only a, the people living in your street will know your stall. Mm-hmm. So you need the iTunes and the Spotify to know you. So you put out some of your work there, where you will get the notice. You will get people to notice you, and then draw that market back to you. Mm-hmm. So the weekly market, you go to the weekly market, sell your wear, and you tell them that I have a, a shop on that street. So if you ever come passing by that way, you can come and take my music. You're not selling plastic right. pop. Yeah. You're selling a very different thing, which is unique to you. Only you can make that music. Or only you can make write those films, write those stories, mm-hmm. whatever it is that yeah. you're selling. You go to the big markets, play their game for a bit, get noticed, come out of it. It's the coming out that's the most difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, we get addicted to being there and being noticed and all the attention and oh, the awards and oh, wow, the money. You, you get addicted to it. But you need to go there, make your presence felt, get out and get your, your uh, share of your audience from there and get them to consume, consume your stuff your way. Hmm. Ashwin, you've been 
very generous with your time and I'm glad that we finally got to connect after all this time. Where can people find out more about you? What do you have coming up that you're particularly excited about? Right now, I, like I said, this whole drive has really changed me as a person. It's kind of calmed me down. I used to be this, I can do it all kind of a guy. But I'm really, really uh, concentrating more on my classical endeavors, my, the technique that I'm doing, I wanted to uh, evolve. I wanted to become this whole wholesome uh, style of playing and there are a lot of young kids who are who just started off playing the flute and who want to learn this technique and this style and they want to know the basics and I have this very uh, strange way of explaining things which I always give analogies I always you know I sometimes make fun of it and and then they can remember it very easily right so teaching is something that I'm getting into in a very small way because suddenly what happens is next thing I know I don't want to find myself just teaching and living, making a living out of it. That's not what I want to do. But playing and performing classical music, I'd like to do that. Apart from of course continuing to collaborate with whoever I get to collaborate with. And uh, more of my stuff, I think my website's the best place to go to, which is ashwinsrinivasan.com. And I'm trying to keep it. I'm trying to keep myself abreast with how best I can do all of this myself. Right. Yeah. Because it's the learning curve that I enjoy most. And if you've seen, I mean, like I've spoken, I've I've myself studied this. That since childhood, it's always, it's always that discovery of something new which really keeps me going. Mm -hmm. And for me, to learn something new at all times, is what really drives me. And I'd like to learn something. I don't want to just do one thing and just be there. I I'll never remain, continue to remain in, say, a certain band for the longest time or for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be a session musician for, my, for the rest of my life. I may go and play and contribute to someone's work because I like their work. I like who they are. Right. As it stands, I am already, like, I don't do so many sessions. Not out of choice, but I don't get called also to get to do so many sessions. People probably think, you know, oh, he does all these A.R. Rahman and Nitin Sony and oh, I may not be able to afford it. Maybe they think that way. But, uh, and also there are some really good flute players, young flute players who've come out and everybody needs to work. Right. Mm -hmm. For me, I'd like to learn new things. So I'm learning filmmaking. I've been scripting some really? fiction, okay. fictional scripts, some stories, that story ideas that I've come up with. I keep, I keep writing every once in a while. I learned to uh, uh, write screenplays on Final Draft. I learned to, uh, I'm learning about DSLRs, cameras and lighting and I have some lighting equipment lying somewhere. Oh yeah, house. that's a whole other world. It's there. a beautiful yeah. world there. And you can tell stories, it's all about telling stories. It's all about ex sharing an experience in the form of a story. A story is bits and pieces of different people's experiences coming, putting together and then you're putting it in a way where other people can understand. So I want to tell stories. That's that's my thing, and I'm also working on my stand-up uh, comic act. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I asked you, and there's like five other things that you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So wait, stand-up comedy for real? Yeah. I want to break uh, the ice within myself, like the the shy character that I am. I I like the way you said that. Break yeah. the ice within myself. Yeah. Okay. So I'm working on a short, like a 20-minute stand-up act, and there is this open mic uh, place in Varsova. So I want to see if I can get a chance there, call some of my friends, see where it goes. You know, I really yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't want, 
nothing is going to be a profession or a career. There is no such thing as a career. It's only what you look back, say, when you're 50, 60 and look back and see, okay, this is what I've done. And that becomes your career. Yeah, yeah, your career is whatever you it's did. It's not yeah. a Wall Street job yeah. where you know how your career goes. Or it's not a lawyer's profession where you know, you know, at, at, after so many years you make partner and then you become something else and then you make this money and you have this. There's no such thing. With art, that's not how it works. See, and that's where I think this mindset that you're talking about that you have is actually, as the world changes and as automation and AI and all of these other forces completely change the way that we interact with the world, what work we're even doing, mm. I think millions of people will not be doing jobs the way that they're expecting, right? So you're going to have to improvise. You're going to have to take chances on yourself. You're going yeah. to have to learn and adapt. So, I mean, the, the, these are wise words, not just for artists, just for anyone. Anyone, period. actually, yeah. You need to disconnect and dissociate yourself from... I mean, if you have had a, a college degree and if you're working for some company as an employee, you will have your 9 to 5 to do. But you have to disconnect everything before 9 and after 5 mm. and live your life. To a certain extent, I know life in the developed countries can be lived that way. People go out on, you know, Sunday fishing or some drive somewhere, you know, just like camping somewhere, children. You know, it's the lifestyle, it's the quality of life which is very high, very nice, very beautiful. Also, it seems from sitting here. Mm -hmm. But if we can apply a bit of that and we don't have to go fishing on a Sunday, but if we can disconnect ourselves from everything that's beyond the purview of 9 to 5 and live our lives during that time, that now is the moment. I think we will be able to be more productive during the 9 to 5. I don't think that that's a unique thing here or in the West because the millions of people that are coming here on yoga retreats and trying to find oh, like yeah. that peace. It's as if we're always looking on the other side of the fence mm -hmm. or the river to find this elusive peace that's right there. In some ways, it's almost poetically ironic that you drove 6,000 kilometers with yourself to find yourself. Right. I understand the outward journey that creates that backdrop, that environment for mm -hmm. the inner narrative. It's so interesting that we just do that. I'm over here having conversations with people like you to learn even a little bit more about myself, mm -hmm. which is just ironic. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I think we feed off of each other's yeah. experiences. and. Um, Ashwin, thank you so much. Thank this you. Is, uh, this thank has been you. awesome. I'm glad we finally it's made this happen. And I hope there is at least one person who takes away something out of at least something I, I'm, I've said. I'm sure many will. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Hey. Thanks so much, Ashwin. Thank you. Thank that's, you. Uh, that's a wrap. So if you've listened till this point in the episode, I can only assume one of two things. You either A, really dig this podcast, or B, you started playing the podcast and left the room and totally forgot it was even playing, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. So if you are digging this podcast, there's many ways that you can support it. You can definitely subscribe in your app of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, in TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and for all the folks around the world, we're on Ruckus Avenue Radio. You can also follow us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Awoken Word Podcast. On Twitter, as at Awoken Word. We also have a Facebook page under Awoken Word Podcast. 
hey, if you've got an idea for a guest or a conversation or a topic that you'd like to see or hear touched on, please reach out. Let us know. Feel free to share some of these ideas or bring up some of these ideas in your own podcast. If you're hanging out with friends or family, maybe over beers or coffee or a smoothie, who am I to judge? If you're hanging out with someone and something comes to mind, tell them about this podcast. Tell them this is where you heard it. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your co-workers, tell your great-grandma, tell that weird naked guy who hangs out on his balcony on the building across the street from you all the time. We appreciate the support of each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until the next episode of Awoken Word, peace out.